Hey, I'm Kathy Walker from the Girls Day School Trust, the GDST. We're a family of 25 girls' schools across the UK. We were founded by women for girls 150 years ago, and to this day, we remain experts in educating and inspiring girls. On each episode of Raise Her Up, we welcome guests who are experts in their fields to share their insights and to create the ultimate guide to raising and empowering girls, women, and everybody else. On this episode of Raise Her Up, my guest is cognitive behavioural therapy specialist, Dr. Lee David. You get your anxious part, you get your critic part, and they, they pipe up all the time. And I like the idea of kind of shrinking a part so that it has less power but not trying to kick it out. As a practising GP and a parent herself, Dr David has written 10 Minutes to Better Mental Health, a step-by-step guide for teens using CBT and mindfulness, which aims to give young people and their parents the tools to become their own therapists, to help guide us at a time when waiting lists for support are longer than ever. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up, and this is Dr Lee David. I thought what's going through her, that's what we're giving, isn't it? As a parent, we're giving our love. Raise Her Up. Dr. Lee David, welcome to the Raise Her Up podcast. It's really lovely to have you here. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. You're a GP, you're a therapist. What's been your professional experience over the past two years? What stage would you say we're at now? You know, how have the mental health challenges created by the pandemic? How are they manifesting themselves two years on? Well, it's been a real roller coaster, hasn't it? We've, we've been facing so many challenges throughout the pandemic. You know, there's good evidence that mental health of young people and adults has been affected by the changes, by uncertainty, by coping with lockdown. During the pandemic, where there was a lot of isolation and disconnection, then we were seeing a lot of low mood at that point. So if there was anxiety about things like contamination, then obviously having COVID creates a lot of anxiety. But for some people where there's social anxiety, for young people where they're getting anxiety in social situations, where they're struggling to go to school, for example, then actually that anxiety reduced initially sometimes during the pandemic because the pressures were were taken away. There was no need to do some of those challenges. And I think what we're now seeing is an, an explosion. I'm seeing an explosion of anxiety as people have now had to come out of lockdown come back into the real world, re-engage. And whilst that's been really positive, and I think it has led to an improvement in mood, I think it's also created triggering of anxiety because some of the pressures, uh, it's then harder to face them when you go back. And I think there's also just been a greater awareness. So we know that the number of young people expressing that they've got low mood or anxiety is one of the highest that it's been at the moment. So it's very significant. So from my perspective as a mum, I do see it in my own kids. I see the, um, you know, they were never school refusers before the pandemic and certainly going back to school, um, they were very pleased to see their friends, but it came with a certain amount of anxiety as it always does, you know, at the end of holidays, et cetera. When you've had that prolonged period away, then it does, it does create that, that anxiety, that nervousness. Um, and from a school perspective and, and from the perspective of, of being an educator, we can certainly see that many more of our students are experiencing that type of anxiety. And the issue is that the NHS is at capacity and waiting lists were already pretty long, uh, you know, three years ago when I was still a pastoral leader and they are even longer now. And that is part of the issue, isn't it? So the book that you have written aims to address that in a certain way. You know, when we spoke before, we chatted about the rationale behind writing your book, 10 Minutes to Better Mental Health. It's based on CBT principles and it'd be really interested to hear what made you decide to specialise in CBT yourself. 
Well, I, I'm very practical. I'm a GP by background and, and I like to do things that make a difference and that have evidence that they actually work. You know, this is exactly why I was interested in CBT in the first place is because it's got really good evidence that it really does help people deal with the commonest mental health problems that we see, like anxiety and depression. That really appeals to me. And I like the creativity of it, actually. You can really tailor it. You can play with it. You can actually make it quite fun. And so it's an opportunity to have a little bit more time than maybe I get in my normal GP job to explore things with people. And so that's a a real privilege. And I find it really fascinating as well. I had CBT myself uh, after the birth of my second child. I had postnatal depression and CBT, I would honestly say that CBT saved my life. I found it incredibly practical and I still come back to uh, various specific aspects of it now. For those of you who don't know how CBT differs from other types of therapy, could you give us a, a quick overview of it? Yeah, so CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. And the very simple kind of version is that cognitive is how we think about the world, um, behaviour is what we do, and CBT looks at the interaction between what we, how we think, how we feel emotionally, how we feel physically, how we then behave, what we do, what actions we take. And there's often vicious cycles um, that we can slip into that can cause problems. And as we start to recognise oh, I'm having these kind of thoughts and maybe they're undermining me. Oh, I'm having this feeling. I'm starting to feel low. I'm feeling anxious. And it's how we respond to it. So actually, of of all of the the areas, a lot of people think about changing your thinking styles in CBT and kind of challenging negative thoughts and maybe being a bit more positive. But actually changing what you do is the easiest bit to change. And so we do a big focus on that in the book. And I use that as well in therapy because the one thing that we can control, we can't control our thoughts easily and we can't easily control our emotions, but we can control how we respond to them and what we do when they come up. And so that's changing behaviour. And that creates positive cycles rather than negative ones. Let's talk about your book. I found it incredibly helpful. I thought it was really helpfully broken down. I thought the way you set out timings, you know, this is how long you now need to spend on reading this and on on, on doing this kind of practical um, exercise. It reminded me a little bit in the best possible way of a study skills book. And it made me think about how we really do need to invest in our mental health sometimes as if it was part of our everyday routine. Tell us a little bit about the book. It's called 10 Minutes to Better Mental Health, a step-by-step guide for teens using CBT and mindfulness. So how does it work? How it fits in is it's not going to be a replacement for someone who needs specialist mental health support. But there's a lot of people who are either waiting for it or who maybe could nip it in the bud before things deteriorate. And I think that's a really big group where things are just starting to spiral out of control, but they haven't got too too bad yet. That's really important is to recognise we're struggling a bit here. What can we do? And, And those are the people who can often just make some quite small changes that have a massive impact people say, well, what can you do in 10 minutes? Is, you know, is, is that really realistic? But actually a micro step, a micro change in your behavior, it's like a snowball effect. It's just, we make these tiny little changes. And what it starts to challenge is the fact, the idea that we're stuck, that we have to just do things the same way every time. So partly our goal is not to fix the problem with these little changes. It's to start to recognize, oh, I've got more choice. And as we recognise that, we then naturally start to make more positive changes for ourselves much more naturally. 
Is it a little bit like taking your vitamins every day or making sure that you eat and, and, and sleep well, you know, that investment in, in the way you feel psychologically? Exactly. And it's like we all like to do more exercise, but sometimes you can set yourself up and think, oh, I need to do loads. I need to go to the gym for an hour and I'm just too tired. I can't be bothered to go. I'm, oh, I, I'm just going to stay on. I'm going to just put on the TV. Oh, I'm going to go on my phone and check my social media. And, you know, we've all had that experience where we end up not making a helpful choice because of negative thoughts and feelings. And that, I would call that an away step where you do something away from what you really care about, what your values are. So your values might be to, you know, self-care and exercise, but actually we, we, we don't do it because we're tired, because we're in a bad mood, because something went wrong at work. And so for all those reasons, we make a choice. So if you can lower the bar and actually say, you know, what's the goal here? The goal is to just move a little bit more and actually get back into the habit and build my confidence about doing activity. It might just be that I'll go for a five minute walk. You know, it's still better than just sitting, spending the whole evening on the sofa. And it's just a little bit more doable and a bit more achievable. And then maybe the next day it's 10 minutes and that's how it grows. So you do use a model, don't you, called the grow model within the book. Can you talk us through that, through those different steps? Yeah, so we've got, we call it 10 minute grow. Our version has got four steps. So I work with a young man and we'll call him Josh, who was 15 and he was feeling quite low. He was actually really good at cricket and played at quite a high level, but he was doubting himself. The first step of the GROW model is looking for your inner guide. And the guide is, what do you care about? You know, it's what's important to you as a human being. So what we talked about was, okay, well, let's think about enjoying playing and actually engaging with what you care about. That was really helpful for him. The second step was ready for action. And that's just taking some micro steps. Ready for action means planning and choosing some tiny little steps. So it's not what I think, it's what I do. And what can I do differently? We decided to think about some towards steps um, for him and also for his work, because he was had the same negative thinking style coming when it came to doing homework, when he was revising for his exams, and he'd end up distracted thinking about how he didn't want to mess it up. And so he wouldn't get anything done and he'd end up back on his phone. So we set some micro actions for him. It was going to be five minutes of doing something with his full attention. And then actually what would often happen is that he'd end up doing a bit more. And so it wasn't necessarily about magical change. It was just about a reminder for him. Yes. Then we, the O is for open and observe. And that's kind of based on mindfulness, but quicker because people often get worried about mindfulness. They start thinking it takes too long or I can't, I'm not very good at my being mindful. So we decided not to call it that, but just to call it be open and observe what's going on. So this was really helpful, particularly for Josh, because he was getting caught up in his busy mind when he was playing his cricket. So he needed some skills to bring him out of his head and back into the moment to being present. So if you are very present, you'll be better able to play cricket. We just did some really simple stuff where when he walked up to bat, we used his five senses. So I got him to look around, notice a colour, so notice the green of the grass, hear a sound, and then physical touch. So again, when he was holding the bat, I'd get him to just think about, okay, feel the bat in your hands, push your feet on the ground, scrunch up your toes. There's a reason that, you know, Wimbledon players bounce the ball and they have this routine. It's it's grounding. It's getting themselves in the moment. And they're doing mini mindfulness yeah. there. That's they, they have it as a repetitive routine. And so they're just bringing themselves back to and breathe 
and you could do it before an exam as well. You know, if you're getting stressed out in the exam hall, you can just bring yourself back. So it works very well for negative thinking, but it also works well for worry thinking or or getting into a kind of panic attack situation. Yeah. And then the fourth step is W and that's wise mind. So we're thinking about perspective, being kinder to ourselves. But some of the key things for Josh were to just use a growth mindset, which I'm sure you talk a lot about in the school setting, but it's just reminding yourself you know, how important it is to come back from problems, that it's be willing to learn and actually grow from problems rather than feeling, oh, well, I might as well give up. You know, I think young people are usually really creative and really visual. So I drew on his expertise. I said, tell me about some of your best cricketers you've ever seen. And have they ever had problems? How did they respond? What was their mindset? And so actually, we talked a lot about being inspired. So he was able to come up with loads of examples of how they'd come back. So that's the wise mind is bringing this sense of rather than the anxious mind or the self-critical mind and, and just recognizing that they've shown up and that they're there giving you a bit of a hard time and they might be giving you a bit of, you know, chatter, but actually it's wise mind who's going to take the lead and make the decisions about what we're going to do. So if worry mind is like, oh, just give up or, you know, depressed mind is like, oh, don't try, then maybe it's wise mind who says, come on, we can do this that part of ourselves. We need to actually actively ask that part to step up and be a leader of all the different bits. So we've got our worry bit and and they're welcome too because they want to keep us safe. And we've got our depressed bit who's a bit tired and a bit fed up and they're okay. They're just wanting to make sure we don't overdo it. So we don't have to kick those parts out or feel like they mean that there's something wrong with us, but we don't necessarily want our anxious mind or our depressed mind or our self-critical mind to be the one who calls the shots. That's when we end up in problems because they're then we get rigid or we get extreme. It takes work to do that, doesn't it? I mean, CBT is super practical, so applicable, but it takes work. You have to be mindful to do these things. I really loved the way you framed some of these things, the self-regulation and the self-awareness and getting perspective that having a wise mind can bring. Um, And I also really loved the idea that being kind to yourself is like developing a superpower. I thought was a really helpful way of framing it. And I think that's so important because there's an idea that being kind is a bit like lying down and giving in. You know, you can imagine if you see discrimination in the world, then standing up for that and saying, calling it out. That could be where compassion and kindness comes out through standing up for a friend, for example, who's being bullied by someone and maybe you're there next to them. And so actually thinking about that takes strength, yet it's really powerful. So I really like the idea of strength in kindness. If you think about a bear and their cub. Yes. If you got between the lion or a bear and their cub, you wouldn't want to be there, would you, between them? That, and <laughs> because, because, but, they're, and they're showing kind of what they call fierce kindness, you know, where they really want to stand up and they'll look after. Um, and, and actually, we need to be that more like willing to do that for ourselves. So it might be that we actually say, I need this and this is really important to me. And, and actually, the way you're treating me right now is not okay. Or it might be about, giving ourselves the energy to do something that's good for us. So if we've slipped into a bit of a negative habit where we're doing stuff, you know, we're using video games as a way of avoidance of anxiety. And actually we've got into this habit where it's almost become addictive. Then again, the fierce kindness to say, look, 
come on, this isn't good for us. We need to do something. And I like the us kind of idea. You deserve a life where you're doing stuff you care about. I like the idea of us. You know, um, traditionally, the idea of having voices in your head means that, you know, you are mad. But the idea that, you know, I think that kind of accepting that we have these different voices and these different forces and the worry reflex psychologically is a survival skill to make us think about what the risks ahead are that we might need to plan for. Exactly. Problem solving is something that's innate to humans and it's how we've survived. It's a complete survival strategy. You know, we're, and we're able to imagine problems that haven't even happened that we've never faced, but yet our body reacts to problems we've completely invented in exactly the same way as if we went around the corner and we did meet that bear or, or a lion. So our brain can't tell the difference between times that we've created imaginary. So imagination, it's absolutely fantastic human capacity, but it also means we can and create problems that are never actually going to happen. So to a degree, it's functional and helpful. But if we get so sucked into the roundabout that we spend all our time thinking and worrying and we're not actually in the real world that much, and actually it's stopping us doing things that are important because we're going round and round, it's, it's almost like how much time are you spending worrying about this? Is it helpful? Or are you going round and round and round about like 15 times, hoping that you're going to feel better? Yeah, 15 times in my case, I think, sadly. In each episode of Raise Her Up, we go out to our GDST community to find out their perspective on the matter being discussed. And today I'm joined by Kathy Booth, who is school counsellor at Blackheath High School. Hi, Kathy. Please, could you give us some background and some information about what you do to promote good mental health in your young people at Blackheath High School? In the junior school, we use self-soothe boxes, sensory things such as stress balls, smells, aromatherapy, that sort of thing, which is also useful for the seniors as well. The seniors are often more articulate and able to talk about things, and we kind of identify thoughts that they might have that are unhelpful, so maybe catastrophizing and try and get them used to identifying those as unhelpful thoughts rather than predictions for things that are going to happen in the future as such. It's kind of about trying to work out what that individual child needs and and what will help them. And I suppose also thinking about the basics of self-care, so ensuring that they're eating well, getting enough sleep, just take the kind of like steps just to ensure that their physical well-being is also being looked after as well. I think it's also about empowering students who sometimes feel that there's no one to talk to and sort of giving them some strategies. Obviously, the CAMS threshold is so difficult to, you know, be taken on by CAMS. And I think there's a lot of people who are falling by the wayside that just don't get that opportunity to offload and don't know what to do with those feelings. So I think sort of giving them other coping strategies to help make them feel that there are other ways forward and there are other options and I think the school counselling services are so important. I've got students on my caseload who are waiting for appointments for CAMS but that might not happen for another few months so it's just giving them that space before they get to see CAMS where sometimes people will just come in and, and sit there for 50 minutes and just offload and just having that non-judgmental space where they can do that because often it's very difficult to do that to parents because children are worried about what their parents might feel and 
you know, sort of they don't want to upset parents. So I think it's really important in schools that there is a kind of place that they feel they can go to. Often we'll look at ways that they can express themselves, sometimes through like writing journals or stories, art, painting, drawing. So for students who find it hard just to sit and talk, we can kind of look at different approaches as well. I guess it's being creative as well in approaches. You know, often I know the CBT techniques are fantastic and sometimes, you know, in the sessions we will work through certain strategies. But sometimes as well, it's the more creative approaches that can really access what a student is feeling. So I think it's just about being flexible as well and, you know, open to how the student feels they can express these feelings. Let me ask you about the fact that you have written this book and it's aimed at teens. And it's interesting that you said earlier on the mindfulness aspects of CBT. You know, somebody reading this book in today's world might might think, oh, it takes too long. And when I was doing CBT myself and the, the, the idea of that sitting with discomfort and knowing it's going to pass, the analogies that my therapist suggested were think of it as scenery on a train. It's stuff that is going to go past or think of it as clouds in the sky you need to just sit and wait for this thing to pass. I was really interested to see the, one of the analogies you used was scrolling past worries. And I wondered if when you wrote this book, you had to be really mindful, sorry, pardon the pun, but you had to be really mindful of the fact that you were writing this for a completely different generation, which would have different reference points and also less time or less patience to invest in. Because hard work, isn't it? CBT is work. It is. And I think, you know, I think it's true for all of us. You know, the way the world is, is different. So that sense of lying back and watching clouds, kind of slow, you know. <laughs> and I think a lot of the time people are snappy, they're moving on. They've done yes. five different TikToks by the time one cloud has gone past. So their their attention is moving very fast. And so some slowing of attention is important. But equally, I really wanted to bring in some micro mindfulness skills that would appeal to that faster paced generation. Lee, when we spoke before, you mentioned that your book could also be helpful for young people who are neurodiverse, so who might have autism, for example, or ADHD. How can those young people uh, with those particular lived experiences apply the guidance that you're giving in this book? I think for autistic young people, I think environment is really key to try and create a supportive environment. I think even less emphasis on trying to challenge thoughts for those young people, it's about learning to notice their thoughts. But actually, often that idea of, ah, which part of me is shown up right now? Um, oh, this is the part of me that really likes routine. So there might be a part who really likes things to be the same way and who gets quite distressed when they aren't. And so it's just recognising that there's also other parts as well who maybe do understand that things have to change. And so sometimes we need to alter the different parts that we work with dependent on what's really important to the, the young people that we're dealing with. There can be a lot of anxiety as well. So again, we might recognise the anxious part who's really wanting things to be a certain way, maybe wanting some predictability and control. And we can acknowledge and validate that that part has a valid perspective, but it may not be the only perspective and it may not be that young person's only perspective. They actually may also have other parts as well. It can be really hard to have different needs for all of us and learning to notice them is really, really important in life. Even if there's no therapy, but if you know I'm hungry right now and I'm tired and I'm a bit fed up because 
you know what, I was expecting something to happen and it didn't. And, you know, we can all understand that those kind of things can make a difference. And so actually, it's just a little bit lighter because somehow we felt heard. It's interesting when you're talking about validating feelings and young people being heard. I mean, that is such an important part of being a parent, isn't it? And we're talking about young people's mental health here, which is obviously incredibly important. But I also wonder about the impact on on parents of seeing their children in discomfort. And, you know, we're talking about kind of low level, manageable issues that your book can really help with for people who are perhaps waiting to see somebody or perhaps have not got to that point yet. What effect have you seen on parents of of the day-to-day living with a young person who has anxiety? I mean, it can be really exhausting as well. And and, and also sometimes, certainly myself, and I, I wish that it wasn't this way, but sometimes I feel so acutely when my children are unhappy that I, I feel really deeply unhappy myself. And it, it must take its toll when it's long term. I think it does. And I think that's why we need to hold ourselves. You know, I'm a parent myself and, you know, I'm such a much better therapist for other people's children than I am for my own. I'm so much more thoughtful and reflective and I'm much more open and I'm more able to hear different perspectives than I am with, with my own kids. I'm just like, can't we just get on, you know? So why is that? Why, why is that the case? I used to think I'd be such a great parent because I've been in the classroom with with other people's kids for 20 years and it turns out it doesn't work that way. No, well, people always say to me, oh, you must be such, you know, and I'm like, oh, no, (laughs) you should see me at home. (laughs) Um, So I think the reality is that we're all struggling at home in our own different, unique ways and a recognition of that and a kind of compassion. We need to hold ourselves, you know, back to that fierce compassion. Problem is that self-compassion can flip into self-criticism and the motivation for self-criticism is because we want to do better. But the problem is, is if we start then saying, and if I'm not, what does this mean about me? Am I a bad parent? Am I? And we slip into that kind of guilt and shame. So I think it's really important to just notice how am I doing as a parent? You know, we know anxiety runs in families. Um, so actually people with an anxious child may be more likely to have anxiety themselves, or it may be secondary to the child's anxiety. It's just hard to live with. It may be something that everyone's struggling with together. Um, it doesn't really matter. It's not about blame. It's just about understanding what your reality is and being kind. And then if we need support, we might need to seek our own support. We've all got our own inner team, don't we? (laughs) Well, I do. (laughs) So (laughs) you can use the four steps just as easily for yourself as you can with them. And I think it's almost like you need to mirror it. We all need to have self-care. We need to be on the table as well as self-care for the child. I work a lot with with health professionals who are struggling with their own mental health and compassion fatigue. It's not about saying, oh, don't care about your patients, don't care about you know your teams. It's like a fuel crisis. That's the other example I sometimes use is you can hit a fuel, you just don't ever refuel. And you know the re- refueling might be exercise, it might be time with your own friends, it might be eating healthily, it might be you know reading a magazine, having a bath, whatever it looks like. If you don't refuel, we hit a fuel crisis and then we crash and burn. And then when our child is struggling, we don't have the resources to then be able to drive to support them. We've got to be able to kind of care for ourselves. And I think that's absolutely essential. Brilliant. Wise words. Thank you so much, Dr. Lee David. And Dr. Lee David's book, 10 Minutes to Better Health, a step-by-step guide for teens using CBT and mindfulness is out now. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So what am I taking away from this one? Lots. I really like the idea of grounding yourself. And in fact, that is something that I do with myself and with my kids. 
in moments of panic and anxiety. The wise mind, I love. It's a reminder that we have to actively and mindfully work on our mental health in the same way as we would on our physical health. You know, we would go to the gym, but we wouldn't necessarily take 10 minutes just to check in with our busy minds and seeing how we're feeling. It does take work, doesn't it? I really like the idea of being kind to yourself. I know it's a bit hackneyed. I know it's a cliche, but the idea of it being a superpower and that fierce kindness, actively and proactively not doing what you know is not good for you. We all need to be better at that, don't we? Join me on the next episode of Razor Up when I will be with psychotherapist and author of the book you wish your parents had read and your children would be glad that you did, Philippa Perry. When a child shows signs of being miffed or jealousy, comfort them with it, talk about it. People seem to think sometimes that naming inconvenient feelings like jealousy or anger will make them worse. Quite the reverse. Put the feelings into words and they'll be processed. Get them to brainstorm. Don't be the total fixer. I'll see you then. I thought what's going through her That's what we're giving, isn't it? As a parent, we're giving our love. Raise her up.